morning. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast, Money Talk, for Tuesday the 14th of March. Each morning on Peter Lewis's Money Talk, we bring you the latest business and finance headlines ready for the start of Asian trading. And in today's headlines, US banking regulators announced a plan to fully repay depositors at failed Silicon Valley Bank and New York-based Signature Bank to stem the contagion from the two banks' collapse. The SVB failure was the nation's largest failure of a financial institution since Washington Mutual went under in 2008. President Biden said Monday the US will do whatever is needed to protect the US banking system and to shore up banks. HSBC announced Monday that it will acquire Silicon Valley Bank's UK subsidiary for just £1, according to a filing. Customer deposits will be protected as part of the deal. President Xi wrapped up the National People's Congress Monday with a speech which underlined the importance of security and called for greater self-reliance in science and technology. New Premier Li Chang held his first press conference yesterday since taking over from Li Keqiang and said China's growth target of around 5% was going to be difficult to achieve. But in remarks that sent Hong Kong stocks soaring, he acknowledged the role played by private entrepreneurs in the economy and he vowed to develop the private sector. On today's programme, I'm joined by personal wealth advisor Enzio von Fowl and Pete Sweeney. Contributor at Reuters Breaking Views with a view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group. And if you want to get in touch, you can email me at peterlewishk at gmail.com or go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. In the markets overnight on Wall Street, banking shares in the US and Europe slumped and government bonds across the world rallied in a rush for havens as traders reassessed the outlook for a pause in interest rate hikes from the Fed following the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. The Dow fell for a fifth day, losing 91 points or a third of a percent to close at 31,819 and it was down almost 300 points earlier in the session. The S&P 500 ended down 0.2% to end at 3,856, after falling as much as 1.4% at one point. The Nasdaq Composite outperformed, closing half a percent higher at 11,189. The KBW Regional Bank Index slumped almost 8% Monday, with volumes 11 times greater than normal and the highest turnover in five years. There was a deluge of trading halts amid record plunges by regional banks. Banks with high concentration of corporate deposits are seen as being most at risk from concerns about liquidity. Shares in First Republic Bank, which is based in San Francisco, plunged 62%. PacWest Bank Core stock tumbled 21% and Western Alliance slumped 47%. Hong Kong stocks soared following business-friendly comments from Premier Li at the end of the MPC in Beijing. Investors were also encouraged by the view from Goldman Sachs that the Fed should refrain from raising interest rates at its March meeting given stresses in the banking system. This would likely be positive for Chinese stocks and the yuan. The Hang Seng Index jumped 376 points or 2% higher to 19,696, its best day in two weeks. The Hang Seng Tech Index surged 2.9%. The yuan erased all its earlier losses from during the MPC to trade 1.3% higher at 6.857 in offshore markets. 
and investors piled into US government debt. The yield on the two-year note plunged 59 basis points on the day to 3.99%. That's lower than the 5.808% peak touched just last Wednesday, and it's the largest three-day decline in yields since October 1987 during the Black Monday stock market crash. You can get more details on the latest market movements on my daily blog at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Let's go and join our guests. We have with us wealth investment strategist Enzio von Farrell. Morning, Enzio. Morning to you, Peter. And also with us is Pete Sweeney, who is Asia editor at Reuters Breaking Views. Very good morning to you, Pete. We're back where we were in 1987, aren't we? We've, when we had bailouts of banks, um, the regulators vowed it was never going to happen again. And here we are, uh, 15 years later, two major banks uh, in the second and thirdish, third and largest bailout in uh, bank failure in history. What's gone wrong, Enzio? Well, I think there was a confluence of three forces. First of all, the tech crash valuations as of 2022. And then the silly investing of the um, SVP people going into long bonds despite having a rising interest rate environment as of March of 2022. And finally, then the crashing bond valuations that came as of the Fed funds hike. So this, of course, triggered massive deposit runs, especially with clients who have to meet payroll because of the California law. And so the whole thing has just become a complete dog's breakfast, basically. Is this a regulatory problem? Because it's the regulators that have forced banks to go into bonds in the first place, isn't it, to meet their capital requirements. And they're now holding massive losses because of the Fed rate hikes. Well, they made the the massive sin. They they beget the massive sin of trying to get an additional 40 basis points by going into long bonds, Mm. locking them up for 10 years that no regulator can can regulate against stupidity, frankly, so and, and, and greed. And I'm afraid so it wasn't just I don't think it was as much of a regulatory problem as really just good old fashioned greed. Let's squeeze out another 40 basis points. Pete, what do you think? It was this irresponsible yeah, well, where, on behalf of the banks. Where were their interest rate hedges, right? I mean, where was their? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> so the, as as you said, you know, mistakes were made quite clearly. So it wasn't just like interest rates moved against them. This was a bank that didn't didn't think things through. Um, you know, it's interesting the implications. Uh, you know, like the regulatory concept of risk weighted assets. You know. Um, you had a company who's like, well, we're in the most vanilla asset there is, you know, we're in U.S. Treasury bonds, like what could possibly go wrong? But, you know, the, the structure of their deposits and their loans and everything kind of put them into this position and they were they were not hedged well. So, um, you know, it's it's interesting in a way that it, it took this long, um, but it's not it's 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 just kind of a side effect of this change in the interest rate environment and what that's done to the venture capital community and venture capital funding you know, has, has fallen quite sharply. Um, you know, it's just more risky business to be in. Mm. You know, these startups are, are having more difficulty, you know, financing themselves. And so everybody's under stress. And, um, you know, then I think everybody looking at this now is like, well, of course this happened. But, of course, <laughs> I didn't see that happening a month ago. So I can't, I can't say. That but makes like, two of us, Yeah, you, you think, you think <laughs> that, like, well, of course, this makes perfect sense that this sort of thing would happen. But, like, 
nobody seemed to be pricing it in until it actually happened, and now everybody's kind of like running around frantically. So if you take SVB, with there, they had um, a bond portfolio of about $120 billion. That means every 10 basis point move in the five year, it costs them $700 million. That quickly wipes out their capital, doesn't it, when you've had 200, 300 basis points of rate increases. There must Presumably, though, there must be other banks out there in a similar position who maybe also haven't hedged their interest rate risk. I just want to quickly add, it's not actually the $120 billion that was the problem. It was really the 76%, the $91 billion that they locked into 10-year bonds. That mm. was just downright stupid because in a, in a raising, rising rate environment, as, as Peter pointed out, you just don't – and Peter, Lewis, you know this, having come out of the bond trading arena yourself, you just don't do that. Mm. But presumably, Pete, there's other banks out there, aren't there, like, like this? Well, yeah, we've already had one. I mean, we've, you've mentioned some of the sell-offs. Um, I mean, there's a question of, uh, you know, the, the, the investment community here in, in China and Hong Kong, um, like a lot of these. Uh, mm. So SVB had a, was a, has a joint venture with uh, Pudong Development Bank. Um, that's kind of hived off accounting-wise, but a lot of, like, Chinese startups had money in SVB um, and in other banks. Um but yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, the, to their credit, I think the regulators move quite quickly to um, establish sort of a template for how they're going to deal with this. Um, the questions about moral hazard and so on and so forth abound. Um, this was not the way it was supposed to work. Um, the uh, mm. <laughs> you know, Obviously, people are, are, are gleefully poking at the venture capitalists who are all like, oh, we don't want intervention from the state. You know, Ayn Rand fans and whatever who are now asking for a federal bailout. But um I don't know. I, I, I'm hopeful that the template the Fed has set out is, is something that will reassure markets, but um, we will have to see uh, animal spirits being what they are. Um, and it's going to be very interesting what happens with the venture capital kind of community financing going forward after this. I mean, it, the FDIC, which is sort of guaranteeing yes. customers' deposits, they can't do this too often, can they? Otherwise, they're going to run out of capital because the, the U.S. banking system is $22 trillion. They haven't got anything like that in capital. They've got, what, about $125 billion on their balance sheet, maybe a credit line of another $100 billion. But they would run out of capital very quickly, wouldn't they, if, if this escalated? Yes, and I'm afraid it's um, building on what Peter was saying, uh, that it's the precedent that has been set maybe even Credit Suisse could now trot along and say, well, I also want to be bailed out. Goldman Sachs certainly got bailed out. Mm. And these are just awful precedents. You know, what happened to this free market, freewheeling, wonderful capitalist model that the Americans tout and then yell at China for not having? What does it to, be clear, to be clear, though, we should be fair. Like, SGB is not being bailed out. The depositors mm. are being bailed out. That's SG a good point. SGB... SVP is yes. destroyed. Like they're good, good, good precision. Should yeah. they have been bailed out? I mean, in some ways, some people argue that actually well, who you're bailing out is the venture capitalists who are backing all these firms. So once again, it's not the ordinary member of the public who's been bailed out. Um, it's been sort of, you know, some very rich venture capitalists. And back in the global financial crisis, it was shareholders and bondholders, but hasn't done anything really for ordinary people, has it? I'm not a, I don't know how much these venture capitalists have, have, have um, bribed U.S. congressmen <laughs> with campaign financings ahead of the presidential election. I just don't know. Maybe Peter Sweeney has some ideas. 
Do you have that at your fingertips, Pete? I know that the the big guys are big contributors, but a lot of these, I mean, to be fair, a lot of these companies in SVB are in there, you know, because a lot of banks don't like banking startups, you know, Mm -hmm. like there, there's not a lot of people, they have short credit records, you know, so that sort of relationship, like a lot of these guys are small companies with small employees. Um, you know, there, I don't buy the whole kind of like, they're here to save the world. That sort of startup idealism. But I mean, there are a lot of them are small companies. Um, you know, so their bosses and every party presumably are, are lobbying heavily, um, for this. And, you know, ironies are replete, but, um, you know, I mean, the question is just why, where does this stop? I mean, you had a line of $250,000 insured deposits, right? Which was supposed to protect yes. ordinary retail investors. That was the point of it. Okay. So now we're going to insure 100% of corporate deposits in an event of a bank failure or what? Um, are we just doing this because we were, you know, the United States is very pro startup and innovation or, or are we going to do that for everybody? Hmm. You know, so I think the questions raised are, are quite interesting. Um, you know, if if you have to insure all of this, I mean, the burden is, is quite serious. Um, you know, but, but I think, you know, SVB was going out there taking investment risks to try and balance out, you know, the massive amount of deposits it was sitting on um, as, as venture capitalists started hoarding cash given the change in the environment. Um, so it's, it's a genuine issue. Um, as I, and just to repeat, I think that the regulators did a decent job of getting in front of it. Yes. Um, you know, but we'll, you know, where if, if it continues to metastasize or, or get worse, as it were, I don't know where it stops. So. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're a short seller, do you start targeting? I mean, where's the buy, right? If you start thinking like an evil short seller, like what's the trade here? You know, do you start going after shares in banks that just have a ton of like middle, you know, medium-sized company corporate deposits, or which is what they're doing at the moment, isn't it? So that's you look at the share price of some of these 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 small regional banks. Trade, I would say. What What's the impact out here in Asia? Does it affect? the ability of startups in the tech sector and elsewhere to be able to raise capital if now uh, the people who fund it have got to really rethink the risk of, of where they park um, park their money. Well, I yeah, think that's well, going I mean, to be sorry, a major risk. Please, oh, please. No, you first. Go. I, I, I think it's going to be a major risk um, because it, it's not then just SVP. It's, it's every other bank that, that is, is hooked into a into one of these venture capital companies where they have to park the money. So I think there will be ricochet effects. I know that, according to the Western press, a lot of the Chinese venture capitalists are already a little bit skittish about what's going on. Yeah, well, I mean, in another day, another um, crack in Chinese confidence in American financial regulation, right? (laughs) I mean, after 2008, um, you know, that, that looked bad. And now you have a bunch of Chinese startups who are doing like biotech investing in Silicon Valley. You know, um, I mean, there was a deep connection between this bank and China. And now, like, they woke up and because of the time difference, a lot of them were unable to get their money out. Um, presumably, the, the uh, FDIC move will also protect their funds. Um, but yeah, going forward, I, I expect that to be a cause of concern. But then again, you know, like the whole market is kind of cooling off. So um, I'm not sure. You know, the Pudong Development Bank seems to be pretty stable, knock on wood. Um, I don't see a lot of contagion over here. I see some very annoyed, um, you know, startup companies that had to wait a little bit for their money. But um, I don't see a crisis trickling down just yet. I could be wrong. 
Now, let me ask you about the two sessions. It was quite an eventful two sessions, wasn't it? We, it was closed by President Xi, who gave a speech yesterday. We also heard from new Premier Li Chang, who held his first press conference. Um, out of all the things that happened there, we had that modest sort of GDP growth target of 5%. Uh, we had President Xi uh, talking about security and technological independence. Uh, there was a lot of aggressive um, anti-US rhetoric. And then we also had the news about a powerful financial regulator being set up. Out of all of this, um, what really stood out for you? What was the key um, takeaway? Well, I think for people in our line of work, of course, it's going to be the financial regulatory structure. Um, yeah, this is this is an interesting development. So... Just a bit of background for the readers, not listeners, not familiar. Um, so this is the second try they've made at kind of tweaking this part of the bureaucracy. So it, it, there, there was a massive stock market crash in 2015, combined with a, a, a change in forex policies, and saw the exchange rate weaken quite sharply. And they both kind of rattled markets. Um, and then you also had all these other little asset bubbles and insurance and, and banking and so on and so forth. Um, so they tried to create a super regulator that was going to kind of oversee everything in 2018, um, and they <laughs> welded together the banking. They welded together the banking regulator and the insurance regulator. Um, and this is another rejig, not that long after. <laughs> so I guess for a lot of investors, they were like, "What is the problem that they are trying to solve with this?" So the new entity will have bits of the central bank stuck in it. Um, not the monetary policy parts, um, and then parts of the, uh, the the securities regulator mandate will go to them. The securities regulator gets strengthened; it gets moved up to a state council level role, which is good for the CSRC. Um, and then there's a, there's just a bunch of moving parts. Um, it looks like in the fine print, if you read it, um, that there's this move to kind of reduce local influence over the financial regulatory apparatus, um, closing down. I mean, it's just funny that these exist, but like, so the Central Bank of China, the People's Bank of China has like county level branches. You know, county is a very low, small unit of the Chinese political system. And the PBOC goes all the way down there. So those are getting shut down. Um, and they're tweaking, they're, they're changing the way that the central bank um, provincial offices are, or they're shutting down the existing ones and creating new ones. Um, so that's all going to centralize the monetary policy front. And then Overall, it looks like the, um, the the language is saying that there's going to be a new reform to the way that local localities are regulated, and that implies they're going to send like agency agency representatives dispatched to the local the localities to kind of deal with regulation. Now, this is all interesting. This sounds very technical, but the fact of the matter is that the, the fire burning in the Chinese economy right now is the local government debt problem. They owe about nine trillion dollars overall. Um, and some, a lot of that is in bonds. Some of it is in overseas bonds. It's all looking pretty rickety. This is the next domino to fall after the property crisis um, because the local governments are heavily ex exposed to property prices. Um, they've been getting hit by, you know, the COVID lockdowns did nothing for their, their fiscal position. <laughs> you know, those are winding down. But the property prices, they make a ton of money from, from land sales and land leases. And that is now under extreme pressure. At the same time, under Xi Jinping, They've been getting less and less money from the center. Um, so they've had more and more spending obligations at the lower level, right? They're the ones who, who pay the doctors and pay the teachers and the police and everything at the low level. And they're getting less and less money from the center. So the, the stress is enormous. Um, 
and most of the money has been lent to them by state banks. <laughs> um, so in order to get control of this, it looks like they're, they're, they're going to have to try and take some harsh medicine. Um, we saw they allowed a, a, a bank, Baoshan Bank, to go bankrupt, which is very, very unusual in China, and that happened because of a local relationship mm. that kind of captured the bank and issued a bunch of loans. So that's the big takeaway, is that, like, you have this shift, but I see it as kind of a central power grab uh, and a, a desire to kind of, like, get more control locally so they can deal with this huge problem. And here, what's your big takeaway from it all? I, I would build on what Peter is saying, just to add in a, in a much broader perspective, perhaps, that moving away just from the financial side, history often is can be written by the pendulum of centralization versus decentralization. And I'm afraid that the big takeaway for me is this whole swing, as Peter was just outlining very admirably with the financial sector into centralization. I think it's going to be also very interesting to see how Premier Li Chiang, who is quite pro-market apparently, how he's going to be able to tango with with um, Xi Jinping because she is more ideology driven, and I think that's going to be a very interesting dynamic to 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 watch and monitor. He he gave a very pro-business speech yesterday, didn't he? He yes. was talking about entrepreneurs, saying he understands their concerns. He wants private businesses to succeed, and that um, people who thought that the message from uh, the government last year, which was sort of anti-private uh, business, was completely wrong. He was very pro-business, and markets like that. Well, again, I, I'm wondering whether it's going to be the good guy, bad guy syndrome that we see, where you then just have a very dynamic, evolving relationship. I think mm -hmm. that, I mean, the, the President Xi also knows that he has to create employment, and that, so he will need to, to get companies to come into China, they need companies in China to, to build the employment, because the private sector is pretty important in that, as we all know. Um, but it will, like I said, it will be a very interesting dynamic to see how the centralization of China overall pans out and, and tolerates this market side of, of President Li, of, of Premier Li. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's important to note that, like, the stock markets did not cheer, domestic stock markets did not cheer um, the, the news about the financial reorganization. They fell all week during the meetings. Mm. Um, granted, there's a lot going on with global interest rates and stuff, but the onshore uh, indexes um, in Shanghai and Shenzhen tend to respond mostly to domestic news, and they're down. Um, there was a little bit of a bump after Lee's speech. I don't know if that's causality or coincidence. Um, but anyways, um, yeah, he made the right noises. But as you say, like there's this good cop, bad cop routine that investors are now used to. I mean, you had the same thing with Yoha. It's not like It's not like the previous guys weren't making nice noises about the private yes. sector reform camp in charge of, you know, the question is, like, is, is Li Chang, you know, going to have power to, like, shove things through? Because his predecessor, Li Keqiang, made incredibly warm market noises, you know, <laughs> and, um, but he had been kind of shoved aside by Xi and didn't have a strong economic portfolio, and he didn't really get anything done. Okay. Um, so, um, so yeah, we'll, we'll see, but, uh, but, I mean, I think investors are, are going to be take a little bit more than sweet talking um, to really to really gain confidence here. Okay, well, we'll see how the markets do today after um, yesterday's strong performance for Chinese shares. Anyway, thank you both very much. That's wealth investment strategist Enzio Ron Fowle and Pete Sweeney, Asia editor at Reuters Breaking Views. 
I'm joined now by Ross Feingold, who's Business Development Director at SafePro Group. Morning, Ross. Good morning. Let me ask you about the two sessions. We had um, a lot of talk about Taiwan, didn't we? President Xi said China must oppose independence and secessionist activities. He vowed to oppose foreign interference on Taiwan. And he said China will strive to realize a complete unification and will stick with the one China principle in the 1992 consensus in dealing with the Taiwan issues. Did we hear anything new, though, in what he said? I think you hit the key point there, not, notwithstanding what a lot of the other pundits are going to be saying, right? The key point is at, at any kind of big event, some kind of anniversary, a party meeting, a government meeting, there's always going to be a lot of talk about Taiwan from whoever the key speakers are, in this case, uh, Xi Jinping. So for, from that perspective, it's nothing new. Uh, you know, we can get into discussions about there's more focus or it's, you know, it's taking up more of the, the speaking time. Uh, I, even on that point, I would push back. And the important thing to remember is it, it is one of their key or the key uh, foreign policy issue. Of course, China, they look at this domestic issue. But I'm referring, of course, to its uh, relations with the United States and, and the role Taiwan plays in that, as well as Japan to some extent and other countries. So, so they do uh, emphasize that aspect. Uh, and we saw that, for example, with Foreign Minister Ching Gang's remarks at the press conference, uh, the, the role that Taiwan plays in their interactions with other countries. Uh, but to the extent that they, they mentioned it in the big speeches, I, I think you're right. There's, there's nothing new. Uh, but there is another side of that as well. And we have to look at it more soberly, which is uh, you know, the defense budget side and, and the military exercises side uh, and uh, the potential for conflict, which does keep growing. Do you get the impression that maybe President Xi is getting frustrated with the U.S.? Because as you mentioned, that Chin Gang speech, the new foreign minister, he spent a lot of time talking about the U.S. Um, President Xi called out the U.S. quite directly in his speech, um, which is quite a rare thing to do, isn't it? Normally, he's fairly oblique in his references to the U.S. Do you, you, do you get a feeling that they are getting frustrated? Well, the funny thing there is uh, President Trump liked to emphasize how, how well he got along with, with President Xi. And, and then uh, Joe Biden basically has done the same thing because Joe Biden has, has told us innumerable times how many hours he spent with Xi Jinping and, and, and no other leader has spent so much time with him. And when, when uh, Biden was vice president, he, he spent all, all, all this time with Xi, attending meetings with him, et cetera, et cetera. So maybe that is, that, that is why Xi Jinping has been mm. frustrated because the, the two most recent American presidents uh, kept bragging about how well they know Xi Jinping. Hey, but look, uh, the, uh, the, the number of issues where where there is you know, extraordinary disagreement is, is large and it keeps growing. So whether that's Hong Kong or Xinjiang, Tibet, Taiwan, trade, religious freedom, human rights, uh, South China Sea, uh, actions that China does or doesn't take with regard to North Korea, with Iran, uh, the, the agenda is large, uh, some might call it wide, and uh, new policies keep coming out from the United States. The semiconductor equipment restrictions last October being one significant recent example, uh, com companies that are getting sanctioned by the United States. Uh, well, That's had a big effect, big isn't it? That's had a very big effect because it's nearly every single company now that has an organization that has a significant presence in the high tech industry in China has been sanctioned. 
Oh, if they haven't been sanctioned, they're, 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 at some point they're going to find it hard to buy the latest semiconductor chips. And that's why we see China investing billions of dollars or you know, even more billions of dollars than they have in the past in, in trying to catch up. And look, eventually they will. It's just going to take a lot of time and money. And I think I think all of us recognize that. Uh, but, uh, the, you know, the tech area, it's like – other items, you know, for example, one that's getting more attention in the news recently is companies that do business with Russia, you know, Chinese companies. But you could always find another company to sanction or another government official to sanction. Uh, in a way, you know, that's interesting because it's frustrating for hardliners in the United States because they'll say, well, you know, this is so incremental. You periodically find a few more companies to sanction or a few officials to sanction. And China might say you're coming after us with with, with with a very hard line approach, but for the hardliners in the U.S., actually, this is extremely slow and incremental and not enough. And the other big takeaway, I think, from the MPC last week was the new GDP growth target around five percent. Um, and the new president, uh, the new premier, played that down as well, didn't he? Yesterday, so do you get the feeling um, analysts were quite disappointed with that with that number? But do you think um, China's being unduly cautious here? There might be some element of that. I think they they still struggle with how to market this politically, whether to domestic audience or global audiences. You know, for those of us who, who talk about these things all the time or work in the financial industry, it, we'd probably be saying something like, "Hey, look at the rest of the world. <laughs> we have a great growth target for for an economy of our size and complexity and all recent events like like COVID." Uh, but but they they struggle there because of the the great economic growth numbers that they had for such a long period of time. And if this is a new normal, again, most countries would be really, really envious. Uh, but I think they, they still haven't come out. They, they haven't found the trick to, to selling this uh, both domestically. And, and, and then for foreign uh, consumption, it would be to say, well, we're doing better than those other countries and your companies. Uh, how could you not want to be part of a 5% growth story? Uh, I think they're still learning on that one. But it means... Not so much stimulus, doesn't it? That was another clear message there. Don't expect um, a big ramp up in stimulus from here. No, we know from the past, uh, say, two decades, whenever ever there were some external factors, uh, SARS, war in Iraq, uh, 2008 crisis. If they need to do stimulus, they'll do it. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we shouldn't expect that that it, it's a tool that it's just not going to be used. If the situation warranted, then the, you know, they'll press that button and uh, announce you know some new roads and rails and other types of infrastructure. But I suppose the main message from the two sessions is President Xi is very much in control of the country, isn't he? He's got his third term. Yeah, He's got I mean, all his senior yeah, allies yeah. around him. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the the rest of the world kind of went, oh, my gosh, this isn't democratic when, when the constitutional changes were announced. Uh, but uh, as you pointed out, from another perspective, you know who you're going to be dealing with. And you're going to be dealing with this man at least for the next five years and potentially even longer. And other countries have to uh, adjust their policies accordingly. I mean, even here in Taiwan, whoever wins the election next January uh, and is going to be in office office for four years starting from the inauguration next may chances are that the person you're dealing with on the other side will be xi jinping plan, plan accordingly ross thank you very much indeed that's ross feingold business development director at safe Pro group in Taiwan.